electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Going beyond global. That's what's happening in pharma. For years, drug companies and academics have been utilizing the International Space Station for experiments to bring new discoveries back to Earth. But until now, no one had ever done this in a fully commercial capacity. That changed on June 30th, when Varda Space successfully completed a 27-hour experiment in orbit in its own mini-lab, growing crystals of ritonavir, a drug used to help treat HIV. So it's really for a kind of a good test drug, like the way I kind of explain it sometimes is we're building the world's first oven, if you will, if we're starting a bakery. And uh, this drug is just kind of a name brand flour. We're just making flour and water this time to show that the oven works. Uh, we're not really expecting some great cake to come out. Uh, so more sophisticated drug formulations will come, but this is more for uh, showing that the oven works. Will Brewey, a former SpaceX engineer, co-founded Varda just three years ago during the pandemic with scientist Daniel Marshall and Founders Fund partner Delian Asparoja. This is something where we can build this company into you know, sort of billions of dollars a year of uh, you know, revenue. I like to you know, sometimes give you know, the example of you know, there are certain compounds where even with our, call it, you know, conservative 2%, 3% you know, take, that you know, we could fly on the order of like 10 to 12 missions a year and you know, do more revenue than basically all the uh, you know, 1,200 satellites you know, in Starlink uh, combined. And so um, it's this you know, sort of surprising world where drugs are really just the like, highest margin you know, physical product and highest revenue physical product by unit mass. This first spacecraft in Varda's Winnebago series still faces another big test, re-entry. W Series 1 will plunge back into the atmosphere from low Earth orbit and target a landing at the U.S. military's Utah Test and Training Range. When, though, depends on regulators, since Varda is the first company to seek a re-entry license under new FAA regulations. On this episode, Will and Delian discuss in-space manufacturing, the microgravity drug development path paved, at least in part, by Merck's blockbuster treatment Keytruda, hypersonic missile testing, and even that LK99 supercomputing replication that involved Varda equipment, albeit unofficially. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. So the experiment is we flew this drug called ritonavir, which uh, has polymorph properties that are interesting in general. And a lot of people know the name of the drug. So it's a good first kind of demo flight. And so we put it through a thermal profile in microgravity to demonstrate the capability that we can do just that. Why this drug specifically? And what did it actually entail? Because this is what, a 27 hour um, demo that you did or experiment that you did. So I guess just walk me through why this drug specifically and how 27 hours compares to, say, doing something similar on Earth. Sure. So the the amount of time uh, that uh, is that we're on orbit is just due to how long we want to put the thermal profile of this drug to demonstrate the fact that we can do it because there are a lot of drugs where you can change the properties of them if it's fabricated in microgravity. So like, for example, changing from an IV drug to a shot. Um, that's all about formulation. So you can do that and have a unique effect in microgravity. And so the reason we picked the drug ritonavir is because uh, some of these effects, uh, the polymorphs of uh, ritonavir are well known throughout the industry. So it's really for a kind of a good test drug, like the way I kind of explain it sometimes is 
we're building the world's first oven, if you will, if we're starting a bakery. And uh, this drug is just kind of a name brand flour. We're just making flour and water this time to show that the oven works. Uh, we're not really expecting some great cake to come out. Uh, so more sophisticated drug formulations will come, but this is more for uh, showing that the oven works. And two additional points, ritonavir, this drug that we flew, uh, it was the first ever antiviral for HIV uh, back in the mid 90s. But because of these types of polymorph structure issues, it was actually recalled due to basically crystallization issues causing a drop in solubility in patients' bloodstreams. Uh, and the second is this type of effect from microgravity has been well proven and studied on the International Space Station, uh, Skylab and the shuttle you know, over the past you know, 40 years. Uh, what Varda has proven is that for the first time, a commercial entity has done this independent of the International Space Station with the capabilities of providing um, you know, basically a commercial platform that has no government entity uh, involved in it, uh, and also our own reentry capsule, which is very off access, let's say, relative to reentry capsules like Dragon, Starliner, et cetera, that are human rated, very large vehicles. Ours is very small, very cheap, meant to reenter on a very regular basis, and meant more for pharmaceuticals on board rather than humans on board. So there's the part of it which was let's choose this drug that, you know, a lot of people will be familiar with, why microgravity could have helped if we'd been around in the mid 90s, uh, but also it's a proof of the end to end system of. Uh, you know, for you know, some of the top 20 biopharmaceutical companies that have done research already on the International Space Station, like Merck, like Mr. Miles Squibb, like Eli Lilly, showing them that they no longer need to rely just on the International Space Station alone. Um, they can now start to you know, uh, find a way to off-ramp, let's say, that uh, you know, scientific work into a more scaled commercial setting like what Varda is offering. I want to dig into all of that more. But first, just the fact that you, know, you, have, this, you have this vehicle, this, this capsule that's going to re-enter here. Um, the, Experiment was finished, what, June 30th, and it's still, it's still orbiting in low Earth orbit. When does it come back? So right now, uh, probably within uh, a few weeks to a couple of months, we're finishing up the paperwork on our FAA reentry license. We're planning the trajectories to come home, and we're uh, getting a date at the Utah Test and Training Range, which is our landing site. So uh, kind of putting the final pieces of the puzzle together there, but uh, making sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted because uh, we'll be the first reentry vehicle under the FAA's new Part 450 regulation, which is kind of the new governing um, uh, body behind uh, re-entering spacecraft for commercial use cases at scale. And uh, so we want to make sure we get everything right, uh, that we're setting the right precedents, that the analyses are correct, uh, that it's legally sufficient, that there's public safety. And so in order to do all that, uh, we just need to make, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's. Um, and it's kind of a trailblazing process. So uh, but, um, you know, no cause for uh, like long term concern or anything like that. Just paperwork. I think in some ways, uh, the situation that, you know, Varda is in today just highlights, um, you know, how advanced the you know, ecosystem is in terms of how the FAA and other groups interact with startups. The idea that, you know, there would be a startup that is allowed to move so quickly that they could actually launch their reentry capsule before actually having the license to reenter. I just think highlights that, you know, there's, uh, you know, much tighter knit, you know, bond uh, between some of these regulatory agencies that work, uh, you know, uh, in space and how they interact basically with, you know, uh, space startups. That's really great to hear. And, and, and it sounds like what you're telling me is that you are the first and the first tends to take take the most amount of time when you're talking about interaction with government uh, and the bureaucratic process and the, and the protocols that are going to be put in place and that maybe for the future, it, it's a situation that moves a little more quickly. Um, OK, so let's talk a little bit about the fact that you are the first commercial company to actually do this. How have you been able to be the first and how great is the demand already, especially now that you did complete this first uh, experiment successfully? 
Yeah, so we've we've signed a contract already with uh, the uh, Air Force Research Lab for showing um, uh, uh, the fact that we can use our capsule as a hypersonic uh, test bed. Um, so that's kind of the the immediate near term demand. Uh, and then we're also in the talks with kind of top 10, 20 pharma companies uh, with how they want to take their specific molecules and then um, uh, use uh, microgravity as a formulation process. So uh, right now we're in the, in the process of down selecting which molecules we believe will have the effect that the customers want um, as a as a function of microgravity. And then I think a part of what has allowed us to go from basically, you know, sort of founding date to, you know, flight within two and a half years is this, you know, sort of maniacal focus on simplicity for simplicity's sake um, in that, you know, I think there's a lot of companies that have ambitions for, you know, pushing the fold on what's possible, you know, in low earth orbit. And I think sometimes people's visions can get a little, you know, sort of too fanciful. And I think one thing that we've done really well here at Varda is just truly starting off with the MVP. How do you just demonstrate this end to end system of producing pharmaceuticals? Are we making, you know, one ton of pharmaceuticals on our first mission? You know, no. Do we have the fanciest oven, you know, in the world for the, you know, baking of the pharmaceuticals? No, but we've been able to very simply prove out the end-to-end -end process and then steadily iterate from there. And I think where a lot of, you know, sort of space startups get stuck is in this world of like analysis paralysis, where they're constantly sort of redeveloping, introducing features, trying to make the, you know, sort of the whole system, you know, end-to-end -end more complex. You know, one of Brewery's, you know, classic, uh, you know, uh, phrases that he says around the office is, uh, at Varda, the trains take off on time. The passengers not, might not be all on the train, but it's taking off on time, and then the passenger can catch the next train. I think you know this you know, sort of obsession with you know cadence and cost uh, over you know sort of uh, uh, complexity uh, is what has allowed us to go from you know basically you know, again founding date to first flight in two and a half years, and it's effectively the exact schedule that we you know promised to our investors, which is uh, pretty unheard of in the aerospace industry. Yeah, you're moving quickly. Um, I love a good origin story. How did this come together? Um, so I've been thinking about this idea for almost like, you know, 10 years and then ultimately realized that a lot of the groups that had been doing some of this work on the International Space Station just didn't have quite the right DNA because they were focused more on bringing these like academic papers to market, not necessarily with scale and commercialization. And one of the biggest reasons why many of them were fearful of operating independently of the ISS, which I found to be critical to bring something like this to market. Fundamentally, if you look at this type of pharmaceutical manufacturing today, terrestrially on the ground, it doesn't have humans involved. And so why in God's name would you basically have humans involved, especially highly paid astronauts, when you're doing this in space, a much more complex environment. And so when I would dig into why people were so fearful of doing this off the you know, uh, ISS or you know, independent of NASA support, Two big main reasons were one, you know, funding. And I was like, okay, as a venture capitalist, I can at least, you know, go help solve that funding problem. But then two, everybody was very fearful of this reentry problem. Basically, when you're on the ISS, you sort of get a free ride down from the government via the Crew Dragon, the Soyuz, um, you know, the uh, you know, Starliner. Um, and so uh, I started to think through, you know, who in the world knows a ton about reentry um, and has actually built these types of commercial reentry vehicles ever before. The only group that had ever really done that, uh, you know, was uh, SpaceX and the Crew and Cargo Dragon Project. So thankfully, Brewery and I had a bunch of mutual friends from my, uh, you know, old fraternity brothers uh, at MIT, uh, ended up getting, you know, sort of put in touch. Uh, and, you know, Brewery originally, I think, kind of, you know, laughed at me and was like, this is a crazy idea. Like reentry capsules are like $100 million plus vehicles and, you know, cost a billion dollars to develop. Uh, and then maybe you can tell the story of how you got confident so, on yeah. it. <laughs> Um, so the very first reentry vehicle that was ever built and flown was the Corona Film Bucket, which is a uh, small. It's it's a it's a bucket. It's a it's huggable in size, and it was uh, launched in the designed in the 50s and launched throughout the 60s as a spy satellite. Uh, and when it would orbit the Earth, it would take pictures of the Soviet Union, and then because there was no video downlink, they took pictures on the physical Kodak film, and then sent that reentry capsule back down. And so uh, if you know you can get away with something as 
cheap and stupid as that uh, for the purposes of um, manufacturing and bringing those materials back. Uh, really, the the enabler wasn't um, you know my reentry uh, engineering capability. It was just that launch costs dropped, and that uh, you know I am smart enough to design that thing that was built in the '60s, and it was it's the correct uh, kind of paradigm system, if you will for this application. Yeah, if we were able to re-enter Kodak film over a hundred times in like the you know late 50s and early 60s, we felt pretty confident that now in you know sort of 2020s we'd be able to re-enter pharmaceuticals at least a hundred times. So I think that's what you know in some ways you know gave us confidence and then you know raised our initial round of funding uh, you know maybe you know four or five months after we met December 2020. Now in terms of the, the vehicle itself, it, was it designed so it sounds like it was designed by you guys, but I know you're also working with Rocket Lab on the hardware too. So is that is that a partnership? Like what does that look like? Yeah, uh, Rocket Lab's great. What they do is they build the satellite bus, which contains okay. everything you need to be in space. Like if you imagine a, any telecom or Earth observation satellite, it needs solar arrays, it needs a battery, it needs a radio. Um, and so that satellite we purchased from Rocket Lab. And then on top of it, we add our application. So, you know, some people might add a radio for telecom or some people might add a camera for Earth observation for climate change. Uh, we add the VARTA manufacturing module and the reentry capsule. And so then, um, so, so it kind of is really helpful in the sense of you can kind of see how the space industry has started to commoditize different layers like, um, uh, you know, five years ago, you couldn't buy this type of satellite uh, off the shelf um, at this price. And so Rocket Lab has, it, it enables more companies like Varda to do that. Yeah, if you were to think about the mission cost for something like Varda five years ago, it probably would have been almost like 10x larger in that we would have had to buy a fully dedicated Falcon 9 versus now we can buy slots on a ride chair to sun synchronous orbit. Um, we would have had to you know, design and build a satellite bus entirely in-house, which would have added another two to three years to our schedule and basically massive costs. Instead, you can buy all these things off the shelf and then focus in on basically what our core competencies are. It's sort of the equivalent to what was happening in like 2008 in the internet economy where you had things like AWS and Azure coming online. So groups like Uber and Airbnb didn't have to focus on building their own data centers and can instead focus on scalability and their end basically consumer interfaces. It's sort of the same thing. And I think the same thing that's happening in the space economy where, um, you know, Varda can really just focus in on our core competencies, manufacturing of pharmaceuticals, the reentry of those pharmaceuticals on a regular basis, and then utilize these basically commoditized infrastructure layers for the rest of the uh, application. Yeah, I haven't heard it quite put like that, but that's, that's a really great um, explanation. It probably also kind of speaks to why you've seen some of the, the same internet founders and, uh, you know, uh, kind of early pioneers also now putting so much money and dedicating so much time and attention and, and investment to space as well um, when you lay it out like that. Okay, this is a really basic question. This might be a silly question. I don't know. But in terms of being able to conduct the experiment itself, how does that process work? I mean, is it is it autonomous? Is it robotic? Like, is it, how does that happen? Yeah, so it's startlingly simple. Uh, if you imagine a bioreactor on the ground, and so what, uh, let me, I'll step back for one sec. So what we do is we don't make the drug molecule per se. Uh, de uh, determining which molecule uh, goes into the human body to do what it wants, uh, that's a pharmaceutical company. Now, but that's step one in drug development. The next, you know, the majority of it is formulation. So how do we get that drug into the human body in the way that we want to, right? Ideally, everything would be one pill a day, uh, but you know, doctors don't like shooting you with a shot in the arm. Uh, but the reason they do that is because the molecule just isn't one that can be administered orally. And so this whole challenge of formulation, 
uh, is one that's solved throughout the pharmaceutical industry and uh, with formulation companies. And each one of them had their own niche technology, okay, uh, that allows them to create unique formulations that maybe some other folks can't. And so if you imagine us, we're a bioreactor, uh, you know, where a, a formulation where you would uh, formulate a drug. So you have the molecule, you put it in, you put it through temperature cycling, you stir it, you mix it with different solutions and out comes the solution that goes in your arm or, uh, you know, uh, some, or the pill that goes in the mouth. Um, and so what we do is you can just imagine that oven, if you will, for, for lack of a, a better term, um, with uh, one extra knob. We have a, a knob that's called gravity. And since gravity is a fundamental force of physics, you can get unique outcomes from uh, our bioreactor compared to any other bioreactor on Earth. And uh, so the process is actually quite simple. Um, if you imagine like uh, uh, processing the chemicals for pharmaceuticals terrestrially, traditionally, uh, that's it's the exact same thing. And it's actually a pretty simple machine. It's just heat it up, cool it down, mix it. And that's it. Um, we're only, you know, and there's there's tons of other processes that will go into formulating um, a particular drug. We only do the part where microgravity plays a role. And so uh, instead of this long assembly line that might be in a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant, we just replace that long assembly line with one little part that's called the Varda bioreactor. Now to the customer, it just looks like, you know, they ship it that those ingredients to us and it comes back in a different form and it continues along uh, the manufacturing process. So quite frankly, our customers do not care that we're going to space. They're just like, hey, uh, these guys can turn off gravity, which means they can lower convection, convection, which means that we can create unique formulations. So we'll send it to them at step eight throughout the manufacturing process. And then we take the very simple hardware of step eight, which is uh, essentially heaters, uh, chillers, um, and, uh, and mixers, uh, and we put them into orbit. Uh, and run the exact same very simple process. It's automated. It's as simple as turning on your, you know, thermostat at home and the uh, the heat heater turns on. And then when it gets hot enough, it turns off. And that's literally what we do in orbit. And um, and we bring the molecule uh, back in a, in the form that um, that no one else can. Yeah, this is not like six degrees of freedom, like robot arms moving around <laughs> doing like highly okay. complex. Yeah, you hear manufacturing in space. Yeah. It's like. Yeah, we take yeah we take this small little oven and then bring it back. It's like yeah, powders and liquids and valves and like you know heaters and things like that. I mean, but this is fascinating because you know you think about drug supply chain, which is certainly in much more focus in these last couple of years, given the pandemic, given the role that like a China plays in that process. And it's like instead of instead of shipping around the world, you're now talking about going off the world uh, as part of the supply chain. Yeah, yeah for that's sure. right. So, oh, so hold on. I uh, I told Deli and I wouldn't off road with this new way to explain something, but uh, I'll do it real quick. Is do the, it. The, <laughs> the, uh, the, there's there's three things that you have to believe simultaneously to um, to understand this concept of VARA, and and one of them you just hit on. Uh, so I'll I'll just go through them real quick. Gravity is a fundamental force of physics, which means that it's a unique influence on the chemical process. Two formulation companies exist. That's actually the tougher one for aerospace uh, people in the aerospace industry because you know before I was uh, you know running Varda, I didn't know that much about the pharmaceutical industry. It's like hey, you know you know about clinical trials, you know about um, you know it's roughly a ten year process, the FDA, but you don't know about formulation and how they those formulation companies fit into the value chain. So gravity is a fundamental force of physics. Uh, formulation companies exist. And ship, and the one you just said, shipping to space is just shipping now. Uh, rockets are reusable. 
And so if you think, oh, you ship drugs across the country all the time for parts of your formulation process. Uh, so it's not a huge leap to 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 uh, to under, uh, you know, to, to see how Varda kind of fits um, if you believe those three things. And a part of it is in the early days, we're definitely focused on like higher end compounds, right? Think of like neurological or oncological compounds, where you're talking about like hundreds of thousands to, you know, a uh, million dollar per kilogram in, uh, you know, and uh, revenue for the biopharma companies, because these are just compounds that require so little dosing on a per, you know, sort of patient basis. So you're not going to see us doing like, you know, long release ibuprofen or like penicillin or anything like that anytime soon, partially just because of the scale of those drugs, the fact that, uh, you know, you actually need a decent amount, you know, dosing on a per patient basis. Uh, and, you know, we start with there. And then as we, continue to prove out the model, lower our costs, launch costs continue to lower. That's what allows us to expand into like wider and wider sets uh, of drugs. But, you know, even the oncological compounds that we're talking about, these aren't like, you know, drugs that are only accessible to like billionaires or anything like that. These are like drugs that have like millions of patients in the U.S. Got it. Um, it, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about I'm thinking about that. And it's kind of it reminds me of sort of it's like the shipping analogy continues. Right. Because it's like, you know, stuff that goes in a container ship versus stuff that's going to go in an airplane and the stuff that's going to go in an airplane, which maybe is going to cost a little bit more and is going to get there a little bit more faster is going to be smaller, but higher value. Right. Versus the stuff that's in a shipping container. And so this is just sort of an extension of that is what you're telling me uh, where, where the drug market is concerned and how it fits into the supply chain. OK, how big is this market? We feel confident that there's a you know set of compounds that we can work on that are you know uh, uh, individually uh, you know do billions of dollars a year per revenue and the amount that we can actually capture that again we don't get to capture the full top line revenue when you look at some of the formulation companies that we compare ourselves to like Ginkgo Bioworks, Absalera, Halozyme, all of which are you know uh, publicly traded. Um, and when you look at basically the deal structures that they typically get, you know, for example, Ginkgo just announced a uh, recent deal with Merck, uh, I think just two days ago, um, you know, you're talking about basically, you know, a combination of royalties and milestones that happen, you know, upfront as they continue to work with the you know, company. Most importantly, uh, the royalties at the back end, once the you know, drug is commercially available, ranging from the low end, 25 bips up to the higher end. Some of these companies are getting six, eight percent on the particular you know, sort of compounds. Um, so we feel confident that, you know, even just in you know, small molecules, which is where we're first starting off with, let alone when we start to you know, go into biologics. This is something where we can build this company into you know sort of billions of dollars a year of uh, you know revenue. I like to you know sometimes give you know the example of you know there are certain compounds where even with our call it you know conservative two percent three percent you know take that you know we could fly on the order of like ten to twelve missions a year and you know do more revenue than basically all the you know twelve hundred satellites you know in Starlink combined. And so it's this you know sort of surprising world where drugs are really just the like highest margin you know physical product and highest revenue physical product by unit mass. Um, now, uh, you know, it's going to take us some time to go from where we are today to closing these contracts with top 20 biopharma, proving out, you know, our system to the FDA and then actually, you know, doing this type of mass manufacturing. But, you know, thankfully, the public markets have also, you know, showed that, uh, you know, their willingness to, let's say, underwrite the future of these types of tech enabling, you know, platforms like Ginkgo Bioworks um, today. So that, that, that's why it makes like uh, great business sense. Um, but what's funny is the, the immediate answer in my mind to the question you asked is, you know, how many drugs can you do this to? That's actually point two of what I was saying earlier, which is gravity is a fundamental force of physics. It affects every molecule. It doesn't affect it necessarily in the way that we want uh, to produce right. value for the human body, but everyone is affected. And so it just opens up the envelope of formulation possibilities in a unique fundamental dimension uh, that uh, you can't access on earth. And so some of the new formulations in that opened up envelope are worthless and some of them are extremely valuable. And the, the pilot program to know is um, 
Merck's Keytruda, which flew on the International Space Station. And uh, that's not like a unique drug that's mapped to gravity. Gravity is fundamental. And so when you see a different result uh, on the one, you know, Merck's highest revenue drug on the International Space Station because of microgravity, that's what we're selling. Yeah, Keytruda is Merck's blockbuster monoclonal antibody oncological mm-hmm. drug. Does $25 billion a year revenue for them. On the International Space Station, they were able to show that they could take what was previously you know, a one to four hour intravenous drip administration for patients to something that you could actually you know, send patients home with a few syringes and uh, you know, administer themselves subcutaneously, uh, basically just un- under their skin. Um, and so there's sort of this like, existence proof of, you know, there's not an infinite data set on the International Space Station, but there is an N of one, which is like one of the most high value drug candidates in the entire world, having a huge effect when it was taken up to microgravity. Um, if there's one, there's probably you know, sort of many of those. And we've definitely heard from a variety of customers that obviously this is much further down the line, but you know, when Varda is mass scale, we have an industrial park in orbit, their default answer has been, yeah, I would prefer to just do all my formulation screening in orbit. By default, anything that I can do on the ground, I can definitely do in orbit. But in orbit, I just widen the aperture of everything that I can do. So I'd much prefer to screen everything up there by default and not even do anything, you know, on the ground. That'll obviously take us some time, you know, to get to, but I think it just shows the promise of, you know, sort of turning off gravity would be the default preference, given that, you know, sort of gravity just introduces chaos, introduces entropy into these chemical systems. Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned it's going to take some time to get there. So I guess what are, what are the steps? What's the time frame that you're working in? What's next? Yeah. So steps are, uh, we, we purchased four launches um, and, uh, you know, four, Flights Hardware building the team, uh, showing our demonstration mission right now. They were talking about earlier just to show that we can go to space, uh, exercise our har- our pharmaceutical hardware in orbit, and bring it back down. Um, so that's kind of step one. Um, we have roughly a six months cadence right now for our first four launches, and then uh, we're just starting to think about how to ramp that up. Um, and so on the time scales, you know, the industrial park in orbit's probably ten years away. Uh, you know, if we really work hard. Um, you know, I, I say the, the, the near term vision for success for Varda is we're able to just launch our reentry capsule with a pharmaceutical payload on board on regular launches that occur, you know, every week now, thanks to reusable rockets. Uh, and we can go camping in Utah at our reentry landing site and see more than one shooting star per night of our capsule coming back in with, you know, grandma's medication. Um, that's the near term uh, definition of success. And that's probably, uh, you know, five to six years out. On the pharmaceutical business, you know, sort of side of things, when you look at our first mission, it's basically just like demonstration proof point. Can we actually take a pharmaceutical up to orbit, you know, crystallize it and bring it back down? The next set of proof points will effectively be, can we do a mass set of experimentation in parallel across a wide variety of drug candidates? Uh, Basically looking at, you know, which ones, as Brewery said, gravity affects all of them. It may affect it in a positive way, in a negative way. And so our goal over the next sort of two, three, four missions is tackle a multitude of ideally, you know, by mission two, we're doing two or three targets. By mission four, we're doing 10 plus targets, basically a mission across a multitude of different, basically like, you know, process profiles, basically different ways of taking them effectively through the oven. And ideally by mission four or five, having that sort of first blockbuster hit, the equivalent of, you know, sort of the Keytruda example we mentioned on the International Space Station, but doing that on a VARTA platform. So that'll be like that, you know, sort of next major milestone is that, you know, initial result with a customer's molecule. And then the, you know, next thing that you're going to see us start to do is shift away from, you know, this sort of parallel processing and looking at tons and tons of different drug candidates to instead whatever that blockbuster hit was now actually work with the FDA on, okay, what does this look like if we need to do this on a once a quarter basis, bring back 20 to 30 kilograms, 40 kilograms of one individual basically drug candidate. So rather than the, basically the oven being split and building 
you know, let's say, you know, to take this analogy further, building like, you know, a thousand different brownies. It's instead, how do we big like one big chocolate cake that is like the tastiest one, basically? Um, and so we're definitely focused on lots of little brownies to start. Then it's big chocolate cake. And then ideally, you know, tens of chocolate cakes, hundreds uh, and just scaling from there. That's the roadmap. <laughs> Brownies and then cakes. Yeah. <laughs> Sheet cakes. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. So you're raising more funding to do this? Uh, we're pretty well funded at this point, both between you know our seed series A, which we're in total $54 million. And then Brewery alluded to earlier, uh, we uh, uh, ended up uh, finding out quite early on in our company's life, about six, seven months in, that our reentry capsule, because it's so off axis from things like Dragon and Starliner that have humans on board, we just reenter in a very unique way where we actually go through you know 10 to 13 you know uh, G load uh, you know, during reentry. We experience much higher heat fluxes, which is effectively think of it as like the temperature on the surface of the uh, heat shield. And because of that, this profile much more closely mirrors what the boost glide hypersonic missiles that the Chinese have demonstrated actually go through. And so because that it acts as a very effective, you know, testing mechanism for various basically DOD components that would eventually go into those end, you know, interceptor, uh, you know, systems sure. as a uh, potential sort of hypersonic, you know, call it, uh, you know, iron dome. Um, so we were awarded this initial $60 million Stratify program that we announced, uh, you know, I believe in February uh, of this year. Uh, we're also on contract now with both the Navy and NASA. We recently announced the uh, NASA contract about, um, you know, three or four weeks ago. Um, and so across all of those, you know, call it, you know, 40 or so million dollars of like, you know, public funding in addition to, uh, you know, our private funding to date, uh, which allows us to basically get through uh, our first four, you know, demonstration missions. And so uh, not planning out on, you know, going out onto the markets, you know, anytime soon, definitely want to uh, get through a couple more, you know, proof points uh, of the company uh, across both this, you know, initial demonstration uh, of the uh, first mission, uh, as well as, you know, wouldn't want to go to the market until we can, you know, show investors and in the, you know, uh, public world, uh, the first handful of you know sort of drug companies that we're working with, and the particular drug candidates that we're working on, so that you can sort of paint that future success of hey, we've got these ten drug candidates. We're not sure which one's going to be the one that's going to have the blockbuster hit, you know, in microgravity. But look again, there's that proof point n of one of Kitschuter from the International Space Station. Almost certainly one of these ten, um, you know, is going to be that hit, and so you can extrapolate from there, especially because you know. Brew is kind of explaining before where we sit in like the you know drug uh, you know go to market cycle. This isn't like you know for us when we start working on a drug, another seven years for it to be brought to market. We work at the roughly three or four year mark where you've already done synthesis, you already have in vivo data, uh, you have certain you know preclinical data, and now what you're looking for is that formulation that allows you to go through to clinical trials. And so what that means is like from VAR to flight to actually being on the market, it could be you know sort of three or four years, and so a much tighter time frame than some of these like let's say like AI drug synthesis companies that sit at the very you know sort of upfront. And so. Um, point being, you know, even with these first handful of deals, it's something that investors will see a relatively near-term path to, you know, sort of significant royalties revenues. Um, okay, so as we wrap this up here, I mean, I, I know you're focused on you're focused on the drug market, um, but you did just mention those hypersonic capabilities, um, and for better or worse, the LK99 replication stuff. I know, I know, it's you guys aren't necessarily directly involved, but it did. Uh, involve, I think, one of your employees and using VARTA equipment. So I just want to get your thoughts on that and sort of whether it speaks to some of these different ways, maybe even longer term, of how you're, you know, applying these manufacturing and technological capabilities. So, uh, yeah, the LK99 uh, is not actually space related. It's the I fact know. that we just have a, you know, related to our business, it's that we have very uh, talented, enthusiastic engineers. And <laughs> like, why would you not like if you have the capability to replicate something that came across from the other side of the world because we have the technical like know-how as well as you know the, the resources to do it um you might as well you know it's a cool hobby project right like why would you not do that if, if if you're a great engineer with um 
with a lot of enthusiasm and, and love being here. So, um, you know, it's, uh, um, yeah, so I guess uh, we aren't like, the you know, BARDA isn't directly involved other than, okay. you know, on the weekends, uh, you know, folks come in and work on other stuff too, like, uh, you know, work on their cars. Andrew's just uh, kind of a brilliant guy and, um, and a resourceful one at that. And so, uh, you know, we have some extra tools in the, in the lab and, you know, some people bring in their work on their cars. You know, I work on my plane, Delian, you know, uh, uh, joins me in that sometimes. And, um, and, uh, uh, and Andrew decided to replicate the, the, the LK99 superconductor because uh, he, uh, yeah, I mean, like it's it's hard to describe but if if you knew him and you were just like oh yeah that's andrew you'd be like yeah of course what what why would he not do that all right i was gonna say on the varda side of things you know as much as there's been proof points around other materials uh you know uh in space on the international space station we're very much so going to be a pharmaceutical company for the minimum yeah. next you know seven likely you know 15 you know years any of the work that we do you know around hypersonics or any other you know sort of related dod government work is typically just space infrastructure that we are going to be yeah. building for our pharmaceutical business anyways and has you know sort of benefit to the uh you know national security you know community so um i think you know you won't see us doing really anything other than pharmaceuticals commercially for the next 15 years uh but there may be some offshoots here and there where the infrastructure that we're building is interesting to uh you know air force space force navy nasa etc got it okay you guys are making me feel like i need to step up my hobbies here i mean getting <laughs> superconductors and working on planes i yeah. i mean i'm just like swimming in the pool with the kids i, I don't know <laughs> that actually sounds uh, more challenging at times so uh <laughs> That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.